our Lord, we have found that the devil is not our only enemy. Prowling about as a lion as he does, our great enemy lurks in our heart, in our flesh. It whispers to us treacherous, seditious thoughts of alluring deceit and doubt. It sounds so convincing, so persuasive, and we are often deceived and misled. Teach us today what it means to walk with Jesus as our Lord and not our feelings as our Lord, to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, not only do we live, as I observed last week, to no one's surprise, I'm sure, not only do we live in a feelings, emotion-drenched culture, but today, feelings aren't just important. They're not just persuasive. You really could say feelings are God. Emotions are Lord. People don't so much think as feel. People don't so much believe as feel. Uh, Think of this. If somebody is uh, coming to a decision and anyone challenges the decision or questions the decision or tries to bring in other considerations about the decision, what's the trump card that just stills all discussion and stops all argument? I just really feel I need to do this. I really feel in my heart this is the right thing. And when you hear that today, there's nothing to do but say, well, I guess we're done. I mean, there's no answer to that, right? If you really feel it, then it's got to be the right thing to do. I mean, if TV's taught me anything, if Hollywood's taught me anything, what we really feel in our heart is always the right thing to do. And contrary, if somebody says, well, I just don't feel right about this, is it ever the right thing to do? No, it's never the right thing to do. If you don't feel right about it, well, then don't do it. If, you, if in your heart you feel like it's wrong, well, that's the end of the argument. Why? Because emotions, practically speaking, are just God. They are Lord in our day. And so if somebody were to say, well, my head tells me the right thing to do is A, but my heart tells me it's B, well, which thing am I going to do every time? Heart, B, because the heart is always right and the head can often be wrong. And the head is where we think and analyze and know stuff, but oh, the heart, oh, the heart. That's what really matters. But what is our fundamental confession as Christians? What do all Christians confess just as our bottom line, three-word expression of our Christian faith? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Well, Jesus is Lord of what exactly? Oh, well, we'd say um, of everything, of the universe, I guess. Jesus is Lord of everything. Okay, fine. Let me be more specific then. Is Jesus Lord of your ideas? Is Jesus Lord of my notions? Is Jesus Lord of our beliefs and our convictions? Well, yeah, he's, he should be. Yeah. Okay, well, let me ask more. Is Jesus Lord of your decisions? In fact, is Jesus Lord of your whole decision-making process? Every step of it from start to finish. And then one last question. Is Jesus Lord of our feelings? Is Jesus Lord of our emotions? Or are our feelings Lord to us, practically speaking? Maybe even are our feelings 
Jesus is Lord, practically speaking. When we know in our head that Jesus says X, but we really feel in our heart Y, which one sways? Which one gives the final word? Oh, now there is where you see the reality. Whatever we say with our lips, when those decisions are made, when the convictions are formed, where is Jesus in that process? And where is Jesus in relation to our feelings in that process? So this clash of feelings and faith, not new. We just sang a hymn about it written 150 years ago. Oh, but it goes way back further than that. How far back does this go, this clash of feelings and faith? It goes all the way back to the garden. All the way back to Genesis 3. In the final analysis, why did Eve eat that fruit? She knew that it would be fatal for her. She had every reason to believe that what God said to her was true and that in the day she ate of it would die. She would die. She knew that it held nothing that she needed. Oh, but what do we read? In short, we read, it felt like the right thing to do. It felt right to her. Am I making that up? What does Genesis 3, 6 say? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, oh, not her knowledge of what God said, but her own senses informing her on her own ter- terms. She saw that the tree was good for food. God said it wasn't good for food. God said it was good for dying. But it didn't look that way to her. And that it was a delight to the eyes. It made her feel good to look at it. It was aesthetic and appealing. That the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Uh, When all that happened, she took the fruit and ate. Why? It felt like the right thing to do. She had God's word over here, but she had these feelings, this judgment in here. And that's where it all started. That's where our racial bondage, and when I say racial, I mean there's only one race, the human race. That's where our bondage as humans began our bondage to our feelings, our judgment, as our functional God. So conversion to Christ frees us from this bondage and reconnects us to God, but it doesn't stop the clash because we're, we're accustomed to walking by our feelings. We're accustomed to trusting our hearts, which, as I say, is always the wrong thing to do unless the question is, do you feel like Mexican or Chinese? Well, then... Go ahead, do what you feel like. If the question is, do you feel like stealing some Mexican food or some Chinese food? Ah, then we come into convictions. (laughs) So anyway, let's begin to see what this involves. And this week I'm going to use Psalm 56 as just a psalm that illustrates us how this works. And then my intention is next week to just give a very practical point-by-point sermon on how to do this. But we will see how it's done in this psalm. So we see three great movements in this psalm, I believe. The first is a movement of supplication in a plea for grace that starts from the title to verse 4. I've given you the Legacy Standard Bible there in your outline. So supplication brings us a a plea from grace. And first in the title through verse 4, sorry, title through verse 2, he paints out some fearful circumstances. The title says, remember the title is part of the inspired text, for the choir director, according to Yonath Elem Rechokim, a miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for many attack me proudly. 
Well, I want to make two major points from these, these, you could say, three verses, the title in verses 1 and 2. And the first point I want to make is that faith is not pretending that there aren't problems. And faith is not unrealistically minimizing problems. So I think some people think that. They think that when they hear me or someone talk about opposing what the Bible says to our faith, that they think, okay, so then I've got to convince myself that my problems aren't that bad. Oh, no, that's, that's not what this is. And you don't see him doing this. The title says the Philistines have seized him. We don't know exactly when this was. There's a time uh, where David was in, in Gath and they uh, suspected him. It could be referring to that or another time. But they seized him, and so he prays for, for grace in verse 1, because man's trampled upon me. And uh, these are fearful circumstances. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for many attack me proudly. So you see, these are real problems, and he's never going to say that these problems aren't real. They aren't really attacking him. Sometimes it's true that, you know, it, it just some... Uh, common sense talking to will show us that our problems aren't as big as we're making them. It's true that we often uh, exaggerate them or catastrophize them or they're always scarier in the dark. And sometimes, yeah, that's an element, but that's not what this is. This is a matter of looking at the problems and seeing that they're very real and they're big, but that God is more real and God is bigger. Do you see? So it's not that the problems aren't real, it's that God is more real. It's not that the problems aren't big, it's that God is bigger. It's, it's the important, correct translation of that verse in Romans 8, where Paul doesn't say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the whole world's against us. The kingdom of Satan is against us. So there's lots against us. The better translation is, if God is for us, who is against us? In other words, size them up. Yes, you've got the devil here. Yes, you've got the powers of the world. Yes, you've got the world massed against us. But stack that up against the infinite personal creator God. So how does that match look when you compare God to those problems? They, they don't become smaller, but by comparison they do. They're put in the true perspective. Faith is not pretending that our problems aren't real or falsely minimizing them. It's realizing how real God is and how big God is. And the second observation I want to make is that problems are not a threat to faith. In fact, problems are the usual backdrop of faith. Now, there's some people who think, oh, I'm in real trouble now. I better put all this Bible stuff aside and get some real answers. Um, and, uh, of course, that's exactly wrong. And there's some people who make a profession of faith, and as soon as they run into troubles, like Jesus talks about in the parable of the soils, well, that faith vanishes, and by that you know it wasn't a real faith. Because real biblical faith is built for problems. It's born of problems. It's, it's born of our conviction of sin and realization that we're under the wrath of God. Realization of how, how much sin has devastated us and our world, and how deeply we need to be saved by grace through Christ. And so it's born in problems and we realize that we are saved amidst a, a dark and twisted and lost age. So this is not a faith that is, that is meant for happy times and, and low pressure and stress. Uh, you often, if you read the Psalms, you'll often see that the psalmists are exercising their faith in the worst of troubles, internal and, uh, internal and external. Uh, masses of foes or guilt and despair inside. And in that 
faith grows. You see this in the, in the stories of Scripture, in the, the faith that people show under fire. What is Hebrews 11? But a catalog of people who exercise faith in difficult times. Biblical faith is built for difficult times. Real faith has problems as its usual backdrop. Something that the, the first pastor who uh, really trained me said that I thought was very good, I've never forgotten, never will forget, is he said, if the gospel that you preach doesn't make just as much sense in a foxhole in Vietnam, this was back in the 70s, if it doesn't make just as much sense in a foxhole in Vietnam or in a bedroom in Beverly Hills, then it's not the gospel. Because the gospel doesn't depend on a certain income level or a certain educational level or a certain amount of um, stress-free living. The gospel is the good news we need to hear wherever we are. It tells us that whether we're up and out or down and out, we're out. And our only hope is Jesus. Amen? So from start to finish, uh, problems are not a threat to faith. Problems are the usual backdrop of faith. Uh, Tough times, trials, stress, challenges does not mean, well, that's when we need to lay our faith aside. That, That means that's when we need to apply our faith all the more. And remember what we believe and apply what we believe. And this is what he does. From fearful circumstances, we turn to faith's convictions in verses 3 and 4. David takes these fearful circumstances and he opposes to them what he knows to be true about God and he applies that himself. Verses 3 and 4 say, When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? So uh, literally verse 3 says, in the day I am afraid. The very time I am afraid. I I don't wait till the fear passes and then trust. I don't tell God, okay, when you make everything okay, then I'll trust you and praise you. No, uh, when I am afraid at that moment, very literally the Hebrew says, I unto you will I trust. I, no matter what's happening around me, no matter what everyone else is doing or saying I should do, what I am going to do, I as an individual, standing before God, unto God will I direct my trust. Not into circumstances or human help or my own resources, but to God Himself will I direct my trust. So you see what you see here so very clearly, and this is maybe my favorite verse to illustrate this, is faith trumps emotion and not the other way around. Faith is the, is the card that you lay on top of emotion to rule emotion, not the other way around. You don't say, well, I know this is supposed to be true, but boy, my feelings are telling me this. Now, that's not the way it works to live under the lordship of Jesus. If we say that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Lord of all our lives, well, that includes our feelings. And so then we don't come into a place where our feelings would pull us away from Jesus and His word and His will and say, oh, well... This is what I feel is right. This is what I feel like I have to do, even though Jesus says something else. No, that, that's when we, the, the lordship of Jesus must come over our feelings. That's where what we believe must trump what we feel. He's afraid, but he will trust to God. He won't give in to his fears. He won't give over control of his decision-making to his fears. He won't make decisions out of fear. And I wonder how many here who are hearing this have lived chained by fear for years. There's things you know you should do. There's steps you know you should make to move ahead in your Christian life. But you let fear rule you. 
You don't do it because it's a scary thing to do. It's challenging to do. I, you know, I, this, is, this church is my home. I know I ought to become a, a member and commit myself to its discipline, serve with it, but I'm afraid to. I'm afraid about this and that and the other. So, because I'm afraid, I just won't do it. I know I should talk to this person about this or that. I know I should stop this, but I'm just afraid of what would happen if I do that. And, and so what's ruling there? What, what's controlling us? Is, is it Jesus' lordship in a practical way? Is it his lordship exercised through his word, which is how he does that? Or is fear ruling us? Well, in this case, he says, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. And this is what God's called us to do. And notice this, how verse 4 undergirds that. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? It's like a rewording of verse 3, you say. But, but, but notice, too, how you see the elements of faith that we've learned the elements of recognizing, realizing, and resting, that he, he knows what God's Word says, and he praises God's Word as the Word of God, and because he knows what it says, and he praises it as the Word of God, what does he do? He trusts. He rests on it. And he will not be afraid of what man can do with him, uh, to him. Mere man, literally the Hebrew says, what can flesh do to me? Well, it can do lots of things, but not, nothing compared to what God can do or who God is or who God is to me. This has been a very challenging thing to me, and, and uh, if it hasn't to you, I'd like to make it a challenging thing to you. I've realized in my, uh, in, uh, uh, more than once in the decades past as part of my own growth, I've had to realize and see that, okay, well, basically since my conversion, I've believed, well, not basically, since my conversion, since the first minute of my conversion, I believe that the Bible is God's word and that everything it teaches and affirms is true. It's inerrant, it's infallible, it speaks God's truth. And so if somebody lessens God's word or doubts it or questions it, you know, a book says it's by Paul, but he says, oh, I don't think that's by Paul. Well, I always oppose that. All my Christian life, that's liberalism. That's liberalism that, that demotes the word of God. That's false doctrine. That's bad teaching. I've always opposed that. Yet how many of us are theoretical inerrantists, affirming the inerrancy of Scripture, how many of us are theoretical inerrantists but practical liberals? That yes, in theory, we believe that the Bible is absolutely true, but when it comes to applying it in some difficult area of weakness in our lives, no, we don't trust it. We, we doubt that Christ has is, is really saved us. We doubt that he can really keep us. We doubt that God can love us. Knowing all the stuff we know about ourselves, how could God love me? I don't love me. How could God love me? But the word says he does. The word says that where, if you want to see whether God loved you or not, you don't look to how you feel. You look to where? To Calvary. For in this is the love of God manifested, John says, that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, and again and again, then the challenges come to me, well, do you really believe the word of God or do you believe your feelings? You feel far from God. You don't feel that he's close to you in this situation, but he promises he, he is. He promises he'll never leave you. He says, draw near unto God and he will draw near to you. Now, will you believe that because God says it? or not believe it until you feel it. Now, I'll believe God's near me when I feel that he's near me. Oh, then him promising to be near you, and not promising you'll feel anything, just promising he will be. So can I take him at his word, or, or do my feelings control the way I look at it? And if my feelings are controlling the way I look at it, 
how am I different from a liberal? He rejects parts of the Bible that don't make sense to him in practice. I don't apply parts of the Bible that don't feel real to me. Are you following me here? If you can't say amen, at least say ouch. I, I, I think this is of great application to a great many of us. We are in conviction very orthodox, but in practice heterodox. In, in practice, we might as well not believe in the Bible uh, for the way we think and feel about things and how much, how much credence we give to our feelings as over against to the Word of God. So, he praises God's Word, and because he praises it, he trusts, and because he trusts, he's not going to be afraid, not because there aren't people who want to do him harm, but because he trusts God, who's able to overrule everything. So, praise for God's Word issues in trust in God's Word. You see? So, from the supplication, then, we turn, uh, number two, to the description, and we see peril from enemies. Unless you think, didn't we already have that? Hang on, there's a point to that, I think. Peril from enemies, verses 5 through 11. And the first facet we see of that is incessant cruelty. Now, I'd already said earlier, all day long, all day long, and he says it again in verse 5, all day long, they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my heels. Boy, isn't that the the picture of somebody who is just literally dogging you, who is just, just right on you just to catch the first opportunity he can to bring you down. They, they watch my heels. That's pretty close. That's pretty, that's pretty malicious. As they have hoped to take my life. So this is in this incessant cruelty. And, and you think, but wait a minute. Weren't we already done with this? I mean, he already said in verses one uh, title in verse 1 and 2 that he has enemies and he resolved that he would trust God when he was afraid. Shouldn't that have been the end of the song? That would have been a happy ending. Shouldn't that be the end of it? And yet here we are again looking at the, the hostility of enemies, looking at the attacks, the incessant cruelty of those who oppose him. What does, what does that teach us? Well, it teaches us quite a lot. I think the first thing that it teaches us is that working through issues can be layered it can be more like, a, more like an onion than an apple. That troubles can come in waves and need a response each time. Yes, it'd be very nice if the first time we dealt with something, it was done. But it doesn't work out that way sometimes, does it? The pain ebbs, but then it flares back up. The opposition is fierce and then backs off, but then it renews itself. And so what happens when that happens. Well, what happens when that happens is we just need to work through it each time it happens. And we need to work through it the exact same way. So that's a first thing to note down. Secondly, I want to encourage you, don't be discouraged then because of what we see here in Scripture. Don't be discouraged if your woes and your problems and your challenges don't go down with the first blow. Now, I like to have a devastating response to something that ends an argument. I like to have something be over, done with, and gone. But how few of life's issues work that way? How many of them need to be worked through piece by piece and bit by bit and sometimes over and over? So don't be discouraged when the first response is not the end of the matter. And, and that can be very discouraging to a Christian as we fight our own our own inner corruption, our own remaining sin patterns. And, and of course, as we respond to pressure from outside of us, 
and, and we, we, we feel like we've responded sufficiently. And there it is again. We feel like we had mortified that sin. And then here it is again, whispering in our ears. And, and it's tempting to, to think to ourselves, well, I guess first of all, what I did last time wasn't real. It was a waste of time. Or to say, oh, I give up. This looks like this is never going to end. So what to notice from the text here is, no, this is, this is common. This is not unusual. This is what David experienced. He had one thought of his foe's opposition. He responded in faith, but he still had more to work through. There was still more opposition left all day long and on his heels. So don't be discouraged if problems and issues don't go down right away. And do remember that each time they arise, we need to go back to the drawing board for basics. Because we're going to see that the way David responds to this, this is not super advanced sainthood, you know, graduate level course. These are basic things we're going to see he turns to. They're basic things. But at the same time, the basic things are always the things. That's, That's what makes them basic. We don't really grow beyond them. We advance in our use of them, but we don't really outgrow trusting, learning, remembering, praying, hoping. We don't outgrow those things. We are always going to need to apply and mature and deepen in our application of them. So uh, first of all, notice that problems can be layered. And secondly, don't be discouraged if they don't lie down and go away right away. But when they don't, Go back to the drawing board. Go back to the basics. Apply the basics just like you did before. It was the right response the first time. It's going to be the right response the second time as well. So let's see then. We saw the incessant cruelty in verses 5 and 6. Now we see insistent confidence in verses 7 through 11. And we see it in four God-given resources. Four God-given resources. And the first in his insistent confidence, he will not be driven away from trusting God. The first we see confidence in believing prayer, verse 7. He takes this right to God, and he says, on account of their wickedness, will they have an escape? Are they going to get away with this? And he says, in anger, bring down the peoples, O God. God will judge all rebellion. God will judge all sin and all hatred and hostility. And so he takes it to God, where it ultimately needs to end. The renewed attack doesn't kill his faith. It, 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 it provokes it. It stirs it up. As Satan's intent always in issues and problems and pressure is to drive us from God. So what's the smartest, wisest response going to be? To draw near to God. To let the trial, the problem, the distress not drive us away from God, but drive us to God. And so he does that in prayer. Remember Paul says this in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Don't be anxious about anything. And I pointed out to you that you could translate that perfectly well. Stop being anxious about anything because he knows they are. He knows we are. Stop being anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all thinking will guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. So take it to God in prayer. Now, I, think, I, I imagine that some of you were thinking, of, well, this is what I always do. 
And, and God bless you. That's a wonderful thing. There are many people who their first thing they do when they run into trouble is they run to God. I confess I'm of another kind. The worse and more personal the problem, the more I'm likely to want to just curl into a ball and not talk to anybody, including God. And I know I should pray. And I'm just being honest with you. I know I should pray. And I try to. And getting the words out is like squeezing water out of a rock. It's not my first response. It's not my easiest response, even though I know it needs to be my response. So this is difficult for me. So do I not do it because it's hard? Well, no, I've heard myself preach on this sort of thing before, and I try to practice what I preach. And sometimes I preach what I'm already trying to practice, as in this case. And so, no, I I pray anyway. And and what do I do? I pray for God to help me pray. That's very often my first prayer. You know me, God. You know it's hard for me to pray. I I just want to hurt. I just want to think about how awful this is, but I know I need to pray. Help me pray. And God graciously hears. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And this is what David does. He doesn't ball up in a, hurt, in, a, in a ball of hurt and pain and drift away from God. He takes this to God. Believing prayer. Secondly, he has insistent confidence in believing knowledge. Believing knowledge. Look at verse 8. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Well, how does he know this? Has he seen that bottle? Has he seen that book? How does he know that God takes account of his wanderings? What, what sense brings that to him? Does he see it? Does he hear it? Does he feel it? Does he smell it? Did I hear an answer? Faith. Faith is how he knows it. How, how do you know? How do you have a conviction about things not seen? Faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Wow, that's really well put. Where did I get that? What verse is that? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so here he takes what he doesn't see or feel, what his enemies certainly aren't telling him, but he knows it. And he reminds himself of it and speaks to God about it. That even though he sees trouble all around, he knows God hasn't stopped thinking about him. God hasn't stopped watching him. God is, has not stopped being intimately involved in his wanderings, feeling his tears, seeing his tears, and writing down in his own care. So there it is again. You, 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 how often do we say, well, I, I'm, I'm in this situation. I just feel like God has forgotten me. Well, I think we all know what it is to feel like God has forgotten us. But then what's the next thing we do? Well, nothing. <laughs> I just feel like God's forgotten me. And then I feel sorry for myself. And, and then I go watch TV or something. I get chocolate, you know, whatever it is. No, no, what you need to do is you need to pray. And we need to take resort to knowledge. And remind ourselves that, yeah, I, it may feel like God has forgotten me. But I know he can't. Any more than a nursing mother can forget her child, Scripture says. He can't forget me. He's graven me on his hand, Scripture says. He can't forget me. He carries my name on his heart. Jesus intercedes for me by name before the Father. The Holy Spirit intercedes for me by name before the Father, Romans 8, Hebrews 7. No, he can't forget me. It may feel that way, but that's not real. I know otherwise. And so I'm going to remind myself otherwise right in the middle of this problem. Whatever it feels like, the truth is God is thinking about me and he's noting every tear I shed, everything I go through. 
He takes resort in believing prayer and in believing knowledge. The knowledge that he gets from God's word, not from feelings, not from sensation, but from God's word. Thirdly, he takes refuge in insistent confidence because of believing hope. Verse 9, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. He's seeing none of this. His enemies are all still around him all day long, dogging his heels. But he knows that they will turn back when God hears and grants his prayer because he knows God is for him. Again, how does he have this hope? And, and, and don't mistake this. As he said, well, I've, just, I've done the math and I have more troops than they, or I don't think they're very good at this whole war thing. Or, no, this, it's not human reasoning that's given him hope. It's God's word that has given him hope. Because again, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So he has a hope that comes from God's word. What does Romans 8.24 say? Romans 8.24 says, hope that is seen is not hope. For what one sees, why does one hope for? Well, that's the role of hope. We're saved by hope, Paul says. We're saved in hope. All the things that are the best things about being a Christian are things we hope for. They're promised us. They're guaranteed to us. They're granted to us in Christ's name, but we haven't come into possession of them yet. Not visible, tangible possession of them. Oh yes, we are sons of God. We have uh, eternal life in our hearts, but we we are not in our glorified bodies. We're not in the new heavens and the new earth. We're not looking at the Lord's face now. These are all future things. We hope for them. And faith makes that hope substantial to us. And that's how we can have hope uh, amid trial and persecution. uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, where Paul talks about uh, his light momentary afflictions of being beaten and stoned and imprisoned and everything. And he says they're working for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Really, have you seen that eternal weight of glory, Paul? No. No. Well, then how do you know? God's promised it. God's promised it. And so that promise gives me hope. His word, when I grasp it in faith, I have hope. And so he'll say in chapter 5, we walk by faith and not by sight. We have God's promise in his word. We cling to that no matter what circumstances or feelings say or do. And it's God's word that gives us hope and keeps us going on. So, believing prayer, believing knowledge, believing hope. And fourthly, in believing, trust. Now, you could say very forgivably, well, I think you're kind of redundant there, believing trust. Except if you remember the last few sermons, we're making a distinction there that believing something is knowing it to be true and trusting is leaning your weight on it. So many people believe a lot of truths about Scripture who have not trusted Christ for salvation. They know a lot of truth, they believe it's true, but they haven't given themselves to that truth. And so we are talking about a belief. Well, look, let me just read the verses. In God whose word I praise. Oh, just like he said before. Well, like I said, that's what what we do. We go back to the basics and apply them again. So in God whose word I praise. In Yahweh whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Or more, even more literally, what, what will man do to me? So, he, what he, he takes what he knows about the Word and what he believes about the Word and he translates into trust in God. 
believing trust. He takes the truths he knows and he clutches them to his breast. And they give him comfort, they give him strength, they get him through this because he praises God's word, trusts God, and will call his fears liars rather than let God's word be called a liar. Uh, fears can lie. Emotions can lie. There's some people who I know, they, they, they know that to be true, but then when it comes to their feelings, they stop knowing that because they always think their feelings are true. Their feelings would never lie to them. Their feelings are always ultimate. And that's a trap. Uh, feelings are not always true. They're frequently not true. God's word is always true. And so he praises God's word and he trusts God because of his word. He trusts in God. He trusts in the personal Yahweh who reveals himself in scripture. And he takes what he knows and he puts it into practice. This is 1 Peter 5, 7, in practice. All your anxiety throwing upon him because it matters to him about you, Peter says. How do I know it matters to him about me? He says so. How do I know it? Jesus says, well, he's the good shepherd, and it matters to the good shepherd about his sheep. Now, I'm his sheep. How do I know? Because I've heard his voice and answered his call. I've come to Jesus. I couldn't come to Jesus unless God the Father drew me. I couldn't hear Jesus' voice unless God the Father opened my ears. And so I know I'm a sheep. You know it the same way. And so we know he cares about his sheep. No matter what our feelings say, no matter what things look like, we know that. And so we cast our anxiety on him knowing that he cares about us. Not doubting it, not daring him to prove to us that he cares about us, but because he cares about us, we cast our anxiety on him knowing that we can trust him. So there's the translation of what he believes to be true into life. He, he has insistent refuge to prayer, to what he knows to be true by God's word, to hope because of God's word, and to trusting on the basis of God's word. So we've had the supplication first, verses 1 through 4. We have the description next, verses 5 through 11. And finally, we come to resolution in verses 12 and 13. Promises gladly kept. Promises gladly kept. Verses 12 and 13. He says, Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will fulfill thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. So I'd like to draw a couple of things from these verses then. First of all, Trials mature faith, verse 12. Trials mature faith. When he says, says your vows are binding upon me, that's a, a very uh, compressed way of saying the vows I have made to you. The vows I have made to you. They're God's vows because I have made these vows to God. So the, bow, the vows I've made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will fulfill thank offerings to you. Now, what, what, what is that about? Well, let me lay down first a principle and that trials are very clarifying. When God uses trials like a father uses discipline, they're very clarifying to us. Um, perhaps some of you have never experienced this or some of you have, but you don't really appreciate things, common things, until you don't have them anymore. Things that you, you, you take for granted, the ability to walk around, the ability to go where you want. 
you don't uh, think so much of these things until suddenly you find that you can't do them anymore. You're not able to, to leave your house. You're not able to leave the second floor of your house like I found myself in the last part of my, uh, my recovery. I, I couldn't leave the second floor of the house. Going down the stairs hurt too badly and I knew coming back up would be a real problem so I just had to stay upstairs until I I got that last treatment that I got well during that time what value do you think being in church took on to me something I've taken for granted my whole Christian life or being able to visit people or being able to be with people or being able to do things for my family or my church or anything you lose these things that you just assume suddenly they take on a new value and you look at them differently and you think if God were to restore this to me, I would, I'd never stop thanking. I, I wouldn't be the nine lepers who just go away healed and don't say thanks. I'd definitely say thanks. But I wouldn't just say thanks. Uh, I would want to use that, those abilities, those powers I took for granted and then lost. I would want to make sure I use them in the service of God. And you tell God in prayer that, that uh, you know, thank you for showing me how much that meant to me and how much I took that for granted. And if it pleased you to restore to me the abilities I had, uh, help me to use them for you, help me to serve you with them, with all the more dedication and all the more uh, singleness. And so, you see, the trial shows you the things that matter that maybe you just took for granted. And so you, 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 you make vows, you make resolutions, you realize that some so things that aren't so important were too important, that things that weren't, were important were not important enough to you. And the trial clarifies that. And so you dedicate yourself all the more to what matters in knowing and serving God. But then, of course, there's the danger that the, the trial passes and what happens? You forget. You forget because you're back to normal things. The way things have always been, you go back to the way you've always been. And I think that's what this is about. That in the midst of his, his trials... Uh, he made vows about his service and his devotion. <clears throat> me, his service and his devotion and his love for God, and he counted those as binding. And when he came out of the situation, he intended to do that and to fulfill thank offerings. Now, make me make let me make this very clear: we're not talking about bargaining. You didn't hear that in what I said. You shouldn't see it in what David says. He's not bargaining. He's not saying, "Well, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you," as if God were to say oh, you know, I was really hoping somebody would do that for me, and that's a very tempting offer. So I think now I will do this. I wasn't going to, but now I will, so that you can do that for, you know, this is obviously not the way God thinks. He owns the, the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need anything we do. Everything we do for God is not something he needs done, but he takes pleasure in our service. What a gracious God. He takes pleasure. He's delighted in it, but it's not because he needs it. He doesn't, he doesn't need us. We need him. Very important thing to keep in mind. The, the need flows only in one direction. We need everything about God. He needs nothing from us. But he's delighted when we praise him and serve him and love him. And so in the midst of his trial, he made vows and he was going to fulfill those vows. Not, not, not bargains he made with God, but coming to a deeper level of trust and, and mature commitment to God's service. So trials mature faith. And secondly, deliverance enables service. Deliverance enables service. Verse 13. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. So that verse does not read, for you have delivered my soul from death, so that I may go back exactly to the same life I had before. 
or so that I can please myself, or so that I can live just like any other unbelieving idolater would live. But he's delivered so that he might walk before God in the light of the living. And David often says, if you let me die, who's, who's going to praise you? You lose my voice praising you. And every time I read that, I think, would it be such a loss? You know, some of us, would, would my voice be such a loss? Do I praise God so much that I could even make that argument? But David certainly did, and we all certainly should. And he says, you've delivered me so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Not praying to be delivered just to be delivered, but praying to be delivered so that I can serve you, so that I can walk with you, so that I can use my restored freedom, my restored liberty, my restored abilities in your service all the more. This is how one of the ways that trials greeted and and handled and responded to with faith such as we're talking about, are means of great growth and great maturing, deeper and greater faith. So promises gladly kept. Uh, God hasn't bought them from us, and I haven't bartered with God, but His deliverance makes me gladly, willingly ready uh, to serve and to glorify Him. So let's wrap this up then, this psalm that illustrates for us so beautifully what it is to walk by faith like a Christian should walk, uh, seeing Christ's lordship over our emotions. Like all people, we are, being saved does not exempt us from this. If anything, it exposes us to more of it. We will enter into trying and difficult situations. Painful, fearful situations that stir up our emotions. That is going to happen. That's not a question. What is the question? How do we respond to that? What do we do when that happens? Do we just like a surfer go off on the wave of our emotions until we crash? Or do we respond in a different way? Well, this psalm shows us how to respond in a different way. Because like all people, we have trials that excite our emotions. Unlike all people, we've been freed from slavery to our emotions. The chains that bind us to our emotions have been broken. The moment we turn to Christ... We denied ourselves and picked up our cross, and that was where we said goodbye to Genesis 3. We're not going to look at the fruit and decide what we think about it. We're going to listen to God and hear what He says about it. You follow me? And that's a total difference. That is a 180 degree difference. And so we've been freed from that slavery, and our emotions, like everything else, are to be brought under the Lordship of Christ, not the reverse. And so, in our trial... We bow to Christ's lordship and we apply his truth to our emotion, not the other way around. We don't look at his word and decide what we think about it depending on how we feel about it. But we take his word and look at our feelings through his word. And some feelings we judge as being delusional and treacherous and we put his word over them and reject them. And then some feelings we were able to bring into the service of worshiping and praising God. But the bottom line is, in all of this, we walk by faith and not by sight. And sight takes in emotions, feelings, senses, the whole realm that's on this side of God's reality. So we praise God's word as being true and as being trustworthy and perfect, And when we're troubled and we're fearful, we believingly turn to pray 
We turn to knowing and applying God's truth. We turn to hoping in His promises. And we turn to trusting. This is the life of a disciple. This is normal Christian living. And if it sounds strange to you, it shouldn't because this is simply what the Bible teaches. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this, Your Word, and this, Your truth. We thank You for how Your truth breaks chains. We remember the words of Your Son. If you continue in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And one of the things from which Your truth sets us free is slavery to delusional, chaining emotions. So, Father, we pray that you'll help us to understand more what it means to uh, know joy and peace in believing by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.